911. What's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We are your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw. I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Melissa Murray. And today we're going to do a deep dive on the recaps of the arguments the court heard last week. And we'll briefly flag some cases that the court will hear this week before we get into some court culture. And there is a lot of court culture to dig into. So we'll talk about the cases from this upcoming week in more depth next week when we recap them. So let's kick things off with Atchison Hotels versus Lawfer. This is the tester standing case. That is a case about whether testers who identify hotels that don't post accessibility information can sue under the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. Tester standing, as we noted in our last episode, is a very important method of civil rights enforcement, and the court has previously allowed tester standing in previous cases. So here, the defendant hotel in this case is seeking to narrow the availability of tester standing and to eliminate it in these kinds of ADA cases where a hotel doesn't post accessibility information on a website. So the defendant says there would be tester standing if a plaintiff actually tried to go physically to a place of business, and some of the justices seem sympathetic to that distinction, but I wasn't totally sold on it because, you know, you might want to check whether the hotel has accessibility information before you go to the hotel. On top of that, so much stuff happens online today. Like online is the forum for checking out a hotel you're considering going to. Um, So I wasn't sold on that distinction, but it was what the defendant hotel was offering. Well, going online might also be especially important if you are someone with a disability. Right, for accessibility info. Getting to places might be hard, (laughs) yes. This case is about tester standing. And the plaintiff respondent in the case voluntarily dismissed her claims, meaning she filed papers in court saying she no longer wants to pursue this case. And meaningfully, the hotel, after the case was filed, also posted the desired accessibility information. And so all of these things together means that there is a really big question about whether this case actually presents a live case or controversy or whether it is moot and whether the court should even decide if the plaintiff has tester standing and can pursue this kind of claim since the plaintiff is now trying to dismiss her case and end it permanently. So lots to talk about. One of the biggest judicial supremacists on the court, that is the chief justice, was pretty annoyed that the plaintiff would dare try to stop the court from ruling all of us, um, or at least ruling on this matter. So let's play that clip here. The mootness question of whether or not a plaintiff can moot a case to manipulate the jurisdiction of this court. I mean, the mootness uh, papers weren't filed until after the petitioner's uh, uh, opening brief. 
And by judicial supremacy, we just mean the idea that judges should be the ones resolving all of these issues, you know, constitutional questions like who can sue. You know, if Congress has authorized someone to sue, you might say, well, that is sufficient to allow that person to sue. But a judicial supremacist would say, no, like we courts actually need to be the ones to decide the issue. And as we noted in the last episode, you know, judicial supremacy kind of worked out in favor of civil rights in the Alabama case, since the justices were not keen on the idea that Alabama could defy their previous decision in Allen versus Milligan. But there, again, it might have been judicial supremacy doing a fair amount of the work, and that's not always going to cash out in favor of civil rights. Unlike the Chief Justice, Justice Kagan was pretty sure that this case was moot and the federal courts and this court in particular should have nothing to say about it. So here she is. I mean, it still feels a bit unjudicial, if I may say, so that the question is not just resources, um, but, but something broader than that. And I take the point that Each of these is a jurisdictional issue and that there's nothing jurisdictionally precluding us, that this is a matter of prudence. Um, But when you look at a case that's dead as a doornail several times over, you know, uh, the the case has been dismissed by the plaintiff, uh, the defendant is totally different, the defendant's website, everybody agrees, is now in compliance with the ADA. So this is like dead, dead, dead. And all the ways that something can be dead. And to use that case as the vehicle for deciding an important issue, an issue that uh, probably is going to need to be decided at some point, but surely can come up in a live case, I I I guess it just doesn't seem like something that a court should, um, should be anxious to do. Justice Sotomayor struck a very similar note. I'm sorry. I don't know why you haven't answered my question. Why isn't this purely advisory once there's no longer a live controversy between the parties before us? I like dead, dead, dead. I'm just going to start like referring that to that, like as basically all of the theories this court is trotting out. Like, no, that one's dead, dead, dead. There was also dead, 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 too. Dead cubed or to the third power. I thought that was also kind of useful. Yeah, we may we may bring those back later in the term. (laughs) I honestly merchandise opportunity. Dead, dead, dead. (laughs) Dead, dead, dead. So one of you strict scrutiny listeners slid into our DMs to ask a question. And then another one of you who didn't want to get cheeky in the DMs decided to just hit us up on Twitter with the same question. So since so many people had this question, we thought we would answer. And the question is this. How is the current case, Atchison Hotels, different from 303 Creative? And the listener goes on to say... Not to say that 303 wasn't deranged, but as a non-lawyer, I sometimes don't understand the legal parameters. If testers pose hypotheticals and have standing for good reasons, as you explained, did 303 not have standing too? I'm assuming that even bigoted evil mofos, their term, not mine, can have standing in some cases. And that's the end of the DM. Wow, that's a whole question with a lot (laughs) layered in it. So let's unpack. So there are several distinctions between 303 Creative and Tester Standing. One distinction is the fact that in 303 Creative, 303 Creative alleged that they as a business would be personally subject to legal penalties if they violated the law. Whereas in tester standing cases, you have a plaintiff who says, like, it's not that we are going to face penalties for violating the law. It's that we are protected by the law and authorized to sue under it. And that gets to the second distinction, which is in the tester standing cases, you have a statute that the plaintiff says, you know, specifically authorizes them to sue for this violation. 
On top of that, the case or controversy dilemma in 303 Creative was partially about the fact that you had a business that was not yet a wedding website business, and therefore it wasn't clear what sort of wedding websites they might make. Therefore, it wasn't clear whether they would be in violation of the statute or what kind of services they could offer to same-sex couples. And it was that lack of clarity, the fact that we didn't know exactly what this business was or what any violation might look like that was causing a lot of the problems in the case. There's a real range of views about how expansive Congress's authority to even create the ability to go to court and sue should be understood to be. Leah alluded a couple minutes ago to judicial supremacy, right? There is a view that basically Congress has very limited, if any, authority to pass statutes that create rights of action, that give individuals the power to go to court and sue. I think, at least I, and I think that probably all of us, think that Congress should actually have pretty broad latitude to create, not just to define, but also to create types of injuries that federal courts are bound to recognize. And that's something that says Congress has an important role. It's not just courts that sort of begin and end the conversation about our rights and their enforcement. Um, and so I think that the, the question sort of implicates that kind of broader debate about how much power Congress should have to actually create standing uh, in the first place. And then maybe one more point, just in terms of what Leah said about all of the open questions that the lack of a live business in 303 Creative uh, created, I think in many ways are a perfect illustration of why it is so dangerous for courts to decide cases where the dispute is so and any potential injury is so speculative, you know, the court just doesn't give guidance about what the nature of this business is in a way that might enable future courts and litigants to understand the limiting principles, if any, in 303 Creative, um, what kinds of businesses might and what might not be subject to the rule that it sets forth, because there just wasn't the kind of factual development that litigation ordinarily results in that would tell us, like, what kind of, what is it to design a website? How creative is it really? Like, how expressive is it really? All of that was bulldozed over in the court's eagerness to get to the substantive question. So we just don't really know how 303 Creative applies. And that, I think, is a reason that it was really important for the court not to reach to find standing in that case. The business was, as they say, dead, dead, dead. Um, so uh, bringing it back to this dead case, uh, any predictions on what the court is going to do in tester standing? You know, honestly, after the argument, I thought there were five votes and maybe even six at some points for this the idea that this case court. is moot. It's a pretty moderate court. It's a well, very moderate court. This obvious. is that 333 court. <laughs> Coalition right. building. Right. Uh, and those 333, interestingly, seem to be the three Democratic appointees and then some combination of Justices Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh, um, who seem to think the case was moot and should be resolved on that basis. And Putting I'm not the joking. Neo in neoliberal. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I am not joking. Like, Sam actually came pretty hard at the petitioner defendant hotel for arguing, you know, that the case should be resolved on tester standing grounds rather than mootness. Suppose that uh, there's a case that involves an issue that has divided the courts of appeals. There is an entrenched split. It would be helpful to provide guidance on this issue and not allow the split to persist. But the case before us is dead as a doornail and is not going to arise again between these parties. Would you say there that for the prudential reasons that have been mentioned, it would be permissible for us to decide the issue? And I just wondered, like, is he concerned that his colleagues are going to continue bringing the squish, but on tester standing? Another possible explanation is that Sam is just in an oddly good mood that day and therefore able to register law. Are the Phillies I mean, doing well? I, I wouldn't know since Travis Kelsey either. doesn't play on that team. Um, <laughs> because, like, at one point during the argument, like, 
Sam invoked Justice Breyer to laughter. Let me give you a hypothetical of the sort that our former colleague, Justice Breyer, might have asked. So <laughs> let's say I am, uh, I am driving to a dog show, and I am transporting my champion, St. Bernard, and I want to check into a hotel with my dog. However, if they dismiss the case as moot, as the justices seem to want to, I want to be very clear. I don't know that we're necessarily done with tester standing. I think we're just (laughs) done with this dead, dead, dead case. And some of the justices seem to be sending a warning shot that even if this case is dismissed on mootness grounds, they are eager and ready to take on a better tester standing case that would provide them with a cleaner opportunity to actually eviscerate civil rights enforcement. I think the chief's question was, next time we shouldn't do this. Do you agree? So this just isn't the vehicle, but it's coming and they just they're ready when it comes. So we should also know, because I think we haven't said this, that actually the petitioner defendant doesn't dispute that the case is moot. They just say the court should decide standing anyway. So basically, everybody agrees that the case is moot. The ask is just, even though this case is dead, 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 you should still find that Ms. Lawford didn't have standing because that's also jurisdictional. And the court actually can choose which order to address these questions in standing first and then mootness or mootness first and not get to standing. And the ask is, It's a prudential determination. The court can make it. And so the court should choose to address the standing question. But as just what is dead may never die. (laughs) (laughs) But as Justice Kagan said in response to this argument, it seems pretty non-judicious for the court to stretch to decide the standing question when mootness isn't disputed, when everybody agrees there isn't a currently live (laughs) controversy between the parties. And actually, to my mind, and this is sort of implicit in what you were just saying, Melissa, about the kind of warning shot some of the justices seem to be issuing, it seems like it would be especially non-judicious to reach to address standing if the reason you're doing that is basically out of sheer spite because you think it is unseemly that Ms. Lawfer <laughs> files lots of lawsuits against non-compliant hotels and you basically want to teach her a lesson by finding she lacks standing. I mean, I do think no one explicitly made that claim, but there were threads of that in some of the argument yeah. for deciding the case on standing grounds, even though everyone They think she's a troll. Mo- they think totally. she's a troll. A litigation yeah. troll, and they're annoyed. Yeah. Takes her. one to know um, one, um, <laughs> Trollito. Uh, yeah, the Supreme Court is spite. You know, the idea that the court is in the business of like teaching people yes. lessons or teaching the country lessons. I mean, especially that's ladies. This kind of right, especially ladies. Um, this is kind of like infamous line from the court's Affordable Care Act case, the you know joint dissent NFIB versus Sibelius. You know that talks about the court needing to like teach the country a lesson about the importance of limited government by basically taking life-saving health insurance away from millions of people. That'll teach them. So you'll be dead, but you'll know civics. Dead, dead, dead. (laughs) (laughs) But appreciate the majesty of our separated powers, understanding that, appreciating that as in your final moments. That's the most important thing. (laughs) Just to underscore, the whole idea of firing warning shots about what's coming down the pike is by itself a real flex and not especially judicious. But not especially judicious might be another merchandising opportunity. Oh, that is. Yes, that's a good one. Like robes, robes. So you can get robes. Yeah. And then on the back yeah. of like sponsors, like Crow Industries. <laughs> All right. I like it. Yes. 
The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. The next case we're going to discuss is Pulsifer versus United States, which once again is the case about the meaning of a provision of the First Step Act, and specifically who is eligible to be sentenced under the safety valve provision of the act, which provides for discretionary sentencing rather than mandatory minimums. The safety valve provision is available to those who are convicted of nonviolent drug offenses if they don't have criminal history points from a four-point offense, a three-point offense, and a two-point offense. And the question in this case is whether the and means literally and or whether it means or. (laughs) (laughs) At argument, the idea that and means or was referred to as the distributive meaning of and, I think because this is just such a bonkers kind of question. But yes, the distributive meaning of and is that and means or. This question could affect thousands of cases and maybe hundreds of years of incarceration, if not more. So what Anne means really does matter. As we noted in the argument preview, Neil Gorsuch's metier is most definitely textualism. He gave the government a hard time as the government was pressing for the idea that Anne should not have its ordinary meeting. You're saying, hey, Congress wouldn't have done this because it wouldn't capture some bad people. That seems to me, at, at heart, one of two things, either a, an argument about intent, Congress couldn't have intended this, wouldn't have intended this because it wouldn't want bad people to get away, or two, it's a policy argument. You shouldn't want this to happen. And either of those seem to me straining at least your, your claim that this is all consistent with textualism, especially since you haven't identified a canon other than absurdity that would be kind of a classic textualist argument. Well, uh, with respect, Justice Gorsuch, I think we are relying on a traditional tool of construction that this court relies on all Which the time. Which is what? It's called common sense in your brief. I don't know that canon, but I guess it's a good, a good one. It's called construing the structure and the text of the statute, gleaning the evident purpose. Purpose. Of, so it is purposivist. At, at some level, yeah. It's the, 
Is it weird that I kind of agree with him? But uh, yeah, substance, it, yes. But he's just so weird. He can't say even reasonable <laughs> things in a good way. He just even <laughs> when I agree with him, he is making it weird and making it worse. Yes, that is an Olivia Rodrigo reference. And there were times when he actually did kind of keep that in check and was helpful, like when he offered a long rephrase of the petitioner defendant's argument during the seriatim format of the questioning where the justices take turns. We're not going to replay that in its entirety here. Um, But here was the petitioner defendant lawyer's response after Justice Gorsuch kind of outlined the argument. That summation was better than my introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're missing anything, Justice Gorsuch. I have to say the petitioner defendant got a harder time from the justices than maybe I was predicting. I don't know if that's because it was like the first argument of the term and the justices were just into it and wanted to press both sides. I know I said Sam Alito was going to be running corpus linguistic searches to prove that and can mean or, but Amy beat him to the punch in invoking these corpus linguistics searches during the oral argument. So what about the corpus linguistics brief that says in 38% of the time, I understand, and you rely heavily on the fact that over 50% of the time people understood it in its joint sense, but 38% of the time they understood it in its distributive sense. Although Sam did invoke them here as well. This case to me raises a lot of general questions um, that may not dictate a decision one way or the other. But uh, on this last point about the corpus linguistics brief, we ha- I, I think this is a, uh, a very promising tool. Maybe we should explain what corpus linguistics is. Um, so corpus linguistics feels like something cooked up in a conservative meth lab of grievance. <laughs> Am I wrong? Um, so I think often you are right. I'll explain why that's not necessarily the case here in a way that I find like slightly irritating. Um, so corpus linguistics uh, searches is just the idea that you basically take a term and you run through anthologies of texts, you know, whether it's dictionaries or just, I don't know, articles or compilations of words or here, like a survey where you give people a bunch of different phrases and you say, like, well, what does the person mean? Like, does and mean and here or do they mean or, you know, and, and whatnot. And I just think that, like, this is sometimes maybe even often, but like definitely here, a kind of insane way to try and figure out what and means because it's utterly, it's utterly decontextualized, right? Like you can substitute and into a billion different combinations. And when you ask someone, well, what do you think it means here? You have no idea what they are imagining themselves, the audience to be. You don't know what they are imagining the speaker to be. You don't know what sort of assumptions they are making. And it's like, well, here we're dealing with a criminal law that could impose like a bunch of years on people and like the ordinary meaning of and is good enough. And it's just, I don't understand the need to do these flexes where like, you know, of course we noted on the last episode that yes, and isn't necessarily always going to be meaning and, especially when you're talking about conversation. But again, this is like a criminal statute with a bunch of penalties. Like don't read me a bunch of surveys that ask someone like, well, what do I mean when I like say this phrase? I don't care. Yeah, Yeah, a couple thoughts on corpus linguistics. I think that the the kind of intuition that, I mean, I agree, it feels like pseudoscience a lot of the time, but the intuition (laughs) that I think underlies it, which is it's actually not great for the justices just to always draw exclusively on their own personal conversational experience and say everyone knows how X is deployed and to try to bring some methodological rigor. So it's not just the justices 
you know, adverting to their own like idiosyncrasies and intuitions or kind of randomly cherry picking from like history and literature, the use or appearance of particular words. So the idea like is we put together these large databases and actually run through them and figure out how language is actually used in particular contexts at particular moments in time. I'm just saying like that is a charitable characterization. I think it might have some value. I think certainly if the context is the word and, whether we're talking about database searches or survey results, that's preposterous. And so I think that there is limited utility. And I think I'm not at all suggesting that this is should be an important tool in statutory cases. But I think that the idea that trying to bring actual usage of language into the way the justices understand statutory terms might, depending how, on how it's done, be constructive. Yeah. So here's here's my beef with corpus linguistics and why I think, again, cooked up in a conservative <laughs> meth lab of grievance. Like, the whole debate about algorithmic justice is like data that goes in can be garbage and it will yeah. spew out garbage. So I mean, everything kind of depends on what the corpora totally. is. Like, what are the sources on which you're drawing? And it's not entirely clear to me that it is as broad-based as what Leah is identifying, like surveys from different people, which people, who, what dictionaries, what anthologies. And so, again, it's sort of like the scam that is originalism, like presented as this sort of objective yeah. thing. We're just going to go back and look at what this meant in 1789, or now we're just going to go back and run a program. It's going to tell us what it means at time one and for everyone else. But It's not objective because you don't know what the sources are. You don't know how it's being deployed. And in the same way that originalism is not objective because it's not actually a real thing. It's cooked up in the Mies Department of Justice meth lab of conservative grievance. The end. End rant. (laughs) Dead, dead, dead rant. (laughs) And and, and, and to be clear, I was not disputing sort of any of that. I just think in in the abstract there, it would be, I think, useful. You're being charitable as you you always are. If you decontextualize corpus linguistics as corpus linguistics decontextualize text, right? You can get something out of it. I expect nothing less from UK than than to bring a generous, charitable reading of something. Just do my best. That Leah and I will then (laughs) take a crap on. (laughs) (laughs) That's basically the, the script. Okay, so back to the pulse of our argument. So there was this invocation of corpus linguistics. One notable observation I think we all made during that argument was that Justice Kagan was much more sympathetic to the government than we expected going in, or at least than I expected going in. She also described or maybe recharacterized the government's argument in a way that seems worth spelling out since there is a chance the court might adopt it, right? Kagan basically said, well, what if Congress had in mind a version of the statute that obviously meant the distributive meaning of and, right, where and would mean or, but then Congress just rewrote the statute to be more efficiently worded but still meant to retain that core meaning that and means or. I mean, to be – I just wanted to say here, to be more efficiently worded, you took out or. Or is two letters. Like, also, you're not to, to more efficiently, like, like, lock people in jail yeah. for, like, millions more years. Like, they're not allowed to just, like, efficiently cut corners. Yeah. You got to be super clear yeah. in doing so, right? You got to carry it through. All right. So just to say, Justice Kagan seemed to be positing that what Congress had in mind was something like the defendant is eligible for relief if he does not have four criminal history points, does not have three criminal history points, and does not have two criminal history points, which the petitioner defendant conceded would be the distributive meaning of and. And then Justice Kagan followed up with Congress rewrote that version to have a single and. She also argued that the conjunctive reading, so this is different from the distributive reading, the conjunctive reading is where and means and. I I call that the actual (laughs) meaning of and, but (laughs) we digress. She argued that the conjunctive reading is common 
and often does mean and, where the harm arises from some interrelationship between the items on a list, like drinking and driving, for example. But she said the distributive meaning arises where the harm is independent, and she seemed to think that the two-point, three-point, and four-point criminal history points are themselves independent harms. But again, like given how minor two-point and three-point offenses can be, it's not clear that they are independent enough harms by themselves that would lead Congress to retain this mandatory minimum scheme that they were trying to meaningfully adjust and substantially depart from in the First Step Act. Whereas I think someone with like two points, three points, and four points captures someone who is like all the fuck over the criminal legal code, right? And like someone who is just like criming left and right and doing all kinds of crimes who maybe has like different felony counts in like many different jurisdictions. I don't know. But the chief justice also pointed out that like even if you granted that drafting history or what Congress might have in mind, there actually isn't another statute that lists eligibility criteria like the first step does in the negative that has been interpreted this way where and means or. So this really would again be a departure from what laws, statutes, words usually mean. Not just in statutes. (laughs) In general. Walking around. In the corpus. Correct. (laughs) Lots of expectations defied, I think, going into this argument or coming out of the argument. It's a really hard argument, I have to say. Very hard. Um, Sam did have this oddly welcome interjection, so let's play that here. I think that the move to textualism in our interpretation of statutes was enormously beneficial, and it eliminated a lot of abuses that previously occurred. But in the end, we are just interpreting language. Everybody, I assume, in this courtroom today speaks the English language, and all we're trying to do is understand some words in the English language. And it just seems to me that a lot of these arguments that we've heard — I mean, I mean, the people here who haven't studied the case must think this is, this is gibberish. <laughs> It might as well be it might as well be Greek with all this stuff about distributive and M dash and all of that. Is it necessarily that complicated? I guess kudos to Alito for saying what shouldn't have to be said, but that like we're just <laughs> interpreting language and many of the claims of textualism are, you know, a little bit overstated, even though of course he starts by offering this kind of peon to textualism as having radically improved the interpretation of statutes. But with him sort of seeking to simplify at the end of the quote that we just played, I just, you know, ordinarily for him, simplicity would seem to cut in the direction of the federal government getting what it's asking for, meaning fewer people qualifying for relief under the First Step Act. So I'm just not positive I know how simplicity will cut when we're talking about Justice Alito. Um, And since we're on Justice Alito, he also had this weird moment where I don't know what journey he's on with textualism right now, quite honestly, but he he seemed (laughs) to be sort of denigrating the absurdity canon, um, which typically even you know, hardline textualists like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, um, they reference during the argument and they have suggested that that's an important principle. So here is that Alito exchange and then maybe let's talk about it for a minute. On another point, do you think the absurdity canon is about anything other than intent? Uh, I, th- I think it is partly uh, based on this assumption that Congress is a rational and intelligent drafter of uh, of statutes. And so when we see a result that is absurd, we presume that that is not one Congress meant to embrace. It's an intent that's attributed to Congress. We, we assume that they do not intend to write something that's absurd. Correct. Right. So it is about, it is about intent. Correct. It, it's, it's a, it's, it is about intent and it's 
its, its intent against the backdrop of a body, Congress, that we presume objectively to be reasonable. And if that is the case, why uh, would we draw a bright line between absolute absurdity and near absurdity? So, you know, this is a point that absurdity as an idea that, you know, even if you're a textualist, if the literal meaning of a statute would produce a truly absurd result, you're not supposed to adopt that reading of the statute. That has long been a canon that textualists have accepted. Folks like John Manning have written articles, you know, many, many years ago criticizing the absurdity canon as fundamentally resting on intentionalist and thus forbidden assumptions or principles. It was an interesting moment to me. I didn't totally know where he was going with it, but it called to mind a point I'd actually been wanting to make about this term, which is that there is going to be a decent amount of shadowboxing with Justice Scalia. And I think there's a decent chance that positions of his are likely to be disavowed. And that is as stark an indicator as any of how far the court is moving, right? So Justice Scalia, really the father of kind of the modern new textualism, always agreed, although he didn't use it all the time, that absurdity and the absurdity canon was legitimate. Um, And, you know, six years ago, five years ago, three years ago, we had the Trump appointees kind of fighting to wear the crown, right? Like as the true heir to Justice Scalia. Um, And now... I'm the heir of Slytherin. No, I'm the heir of Slytherin. Wasn't that the dynamic? Um, Yeah, in Bostock, the Title VII case, like, Justice Scalia would have been with me. No, he would have been with me. And this is just how fast things are moving. They are now angling to out-textualist him. And looking to later in the term, I think they are likely to disavow Chevron, which is an opinion he embraced and defended. Um, they are looking to lock in expand. I mean, I don't know if this will succeed, but at least some of them are going to try to lock in expanded gun rights, even in instances that Heller clearly, Heller, Scalia's opinion in Heller clearly contemplated gun rights wouldn't be available. That's, of course, the Rahimi case. So I just think the fact that Scalia is the new liberal squish on the court, at least I think that's what, that is one emerging theme, is really important. And again, an indicator of the speed and the magnitude of the change that is afoot. Justice Scalia was a well-known rhino, <laughs> little known fact. <laughs> I think they basically the original that, no. rhino. <laughs> I, Kate, you said a whole word, but the thing I'm most interested in now is the documentary Shadow Boxing with Justice Scalia, <laughs> which I hope Don Porter is listening to and <laughs> will immediately put into production. More generally, a lot of the justices in Pulsifer were pushing the defendant to concede that and could sometimes mean or, and that meaning would depend on context. And the countess of context, one Katanji Brown-Jackson, intervened to make the point that we predicted she would make. It's like she's been listening to us almost. Easter egg, Easter egg from KBJ. (laughs) We predicted that she would push back on the idea that the defendant's interpretation would result in lower sentences for people with more serious criminal history background. So let's play the clip. Um, And don't they have to under the sentencing guidelines? I mean, the safety valve just removes the mandatory minimum, but um, don't the judges then have to look at the guidelines? And wouldn't you expect that a defendant who had a number of serious criminal violent uh, uh, priors, the guidelines would take account of that in terms of what the ultimate sentence was going to be? So in some ways, the justice's hesitation over the, you know, just the text and only the text argument was good in that it's kind of distancing from the mindless version of textualism that doesn't take seriously the enterprise of statutory interpretation, but it's also deeply 
awful and frustrating that like the only time they do this, the only time they try and complicate their wooden brand of textualism is when their wooden brand of textualism would support a defendant or support voting rights or support agency authority. And like that's when they're like, oh, we'll just like turn to context and these other things too. It's almost like they're selective about almost. their principles. It's mm. almost like that. Almost. Um, it's almost like their principles are dead, dead, dead. And Neil Gorsuch was quite pissed off uh, that people were just not that into textualism. I don't know that you need. So you think the Ninth Circuit was wrong in a uh, case that favors you? Alas, uh, uh, here we are, day one. I'd also like to note that I am also over this term on day one, Neil. So we have that in common. Um, so takeaways from this argument. You know, I counted, I think, four votes for petitioner defendant between Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson, the chief, and Justice Gorsuch. And I am really, really, really hoping that there is a fifth vote, maybe from Thomas, maybe from Barrett, maybe, though, the seem less likely after the argument, Justice Kagan. I'm hoping there's a fifth. I think there should be more than five votes. And I guess we will just leave the case with the Countess of Context summing it up as she is able to do so well. So I appreciate that and can sometimes mean or. Um, but this is not a conversation. This is a statute. And it's a criminal statute with huge implications for the lives and well-being of the people who come through the system. And so I guess what I'm trying to understand is why the imprecision in this statute, the fact that you say that there are two textually, grammatically possible readings, why doesn't that count against the government? Justice Kagan said, I'm going to assume lenity applies. Can you help me understand why it wouldn't? Also, one short errata. So we mentioned Pulsifer was represented, I think, in passing by Jones Day, actually represented by Skadden, the lead attorney on the cases formerly at Jones Day. Can I just ask one more question about this? Like, yeah. it's actually a theme for this whole stupid sitting. Why do these men insist <laughs> Dumb, dumb, on- dumb. Dead, dead, dead. Dead, dead. Dumb, dumb, <laughs> dumb. Why do these men insist on interrupting KBJ? Like, and I'm not just talking about her male colleagues, like also the lawyers. Like, we're going to yeah. get to Noel Francisco, but like, oh God. cheese and rice. Like, could that guy like get a clue? Like, she's wearing a robe. Like, shut the F up when she's talking. She was she was not here for him either. We're going to get to that. But do you agree? Did you? Like, oh, yeah, just, definitely. Like, stepping on her words constantly. Yeah. And, and her colleagues yeah. as well. I want to be her anger translator. I just want to be like, yes. like, can I just show up at oral arguments and just sit yes. next to her and just be like, shut up. I'm talking. <laughs> I'm not done. I'll let you know when you can talk. Oh, Thank the you. The anger translator would just have a field that. day in I the CFPB. I want to be KBJ's. The CFPB argument. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I felt like I could hear yeah. her rage in the silences just on yeah. the audio. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, 
stay out of my hole for Arizona, stay out of my prickly pear for Texas, and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Can we go on to CFPB versus yeah. Community Financial Service Association, also known as payday lenders? Yeah, we yeah, okay. we saved the best. I don't know if best is the right descriptor, but we saved a really important Most case exciting. for last. Most uh, it was yeah, really <laughs> a rollicking oral argument, I guess maybe we could call rollicking. it. Rollicking. <laughs> um, the case, just as a reminder, is about basically whether the court has the appetite to trigger another great recession, maybe depression, by invalidating the funding structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and calling into question, potentially, the funding structures of many other federal agencies, including such obscure agencies as the Federal Reserve Board and the FDIC. So we will see. You'll recall, listeners, that the Fifth Circuit said that the CFPB was unconstitutional because Congress wrote into the statute a longer-term appropriation to the CFPB that was coming from funds that were not directly appropriated from Congress. They came externally from funds from the Federal Reserve, i.e., assessments from Federal Reserve banks. And the Fifth Circuit kind of got its knickers in a wad about this and said that this kind of external appropriation violated the Appropriations Clause since Congress didn't fund CFPB through the annuals appropriations process. And because of the principle of legislative supremacy, which is weird to invoke here in a case where judges purport to tell Congress what it did wrong, but no worries, Because of the principle of legislative supremacy in the Appropriations Clause, the courts can now tell Congress how it can exercise its appropriation powers to fund agencies. I just want to say, this entire case was giving Congress as the Little Mermaid vibes. Like, some (laughs) big bad sea witch, like Elizabeth Warren, stole Congress's voice and took her power, and now... Prince Eric slash the entire conservative wing of this court, shadow boxing with Justice Scalia, is going to come in and save Congress from itself by telling Congress how best congressional power should be executed by judges. Because you know what? The separation of powers just needs to use a little body language. (laughs) Body, yaddy, 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 yaddy. That's the whole thing. I feel like the 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 first question out of my mouth when when this argument started was like, if it's so fucking bad, why can't Congress just go change it? You know what? Weirdly, Brett Kavanaugh made this point too. It was crazy. I know. Honestly, I feel like this case is just so easy. That's what was happening because you know, as as Melissa's comment suggested. Good news, America. The Supreme Court does not seem eager to trigger a second Great Recession or depression and nuke the CFPP and declare a field day on other financial institutions. Having said that, Sam Alito does appear open to doing so. Um, I also read Neil Gorsuch as like Great Recession curious. Um, maybe Thomas as well. Hard to say. Honestly, I thought the Chief Justice did as well. I'm not sure like when it comes down to the actual drafting where he will be, but he was pretty, I thought, close to where at least Gorsuch and Thomas were during the argument. I mean, I do still agree with you. I think the Fifth Circuit gets reversed. But I wouldn't rule out 5-4. And that 
I think is completely insane because this case obviously should be 9-0, but, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Maybe let's start with the Countess of Context slash the Countess of the Actual Constitution on really the heart of the matter in this case. And the reason I think that is because of the language of the Appropriations Clause and the way in which it seems to give the legislature the prerogative of the purse. And here we have a statute in which the legislature has exercised that. So we also got a nice window during this argument into Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor's, and then also Justice Jackson's, as we'll get to in the end. But here, uh, just Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor's burn books. Um, and apparently, Noel Francisco, who was arguing the case for the Payday Lending Association, as well as the Fifth Circuit, occupies several pages in those books. Um, so Justice Kagan underscored a point we talked about in the preview episode, namely that Congress has always, since the beginning of time, relied on appropriations that aren't just year-to-year appropriations in an annual budget. So let's play that clip here. The history of our country just rejects that scheme. I mean, that might have been a way to understand what the framers were doing. But it turns out that from the very first year, that's not what they were doing. That's not what they did. Annual line item appropriations were some appropriations, but um, massively not all appropriations. So you're just flying in the face of 250 years of history. Basically, it's called originalism, Fifth Circuit. Look it up. And Justice Sotomayor deployed an oldie but goodie insult that she often reserves for the most unhinged arguments that she is forced to endure as a sitting justice. I'm sorry. I'm trying to understand your argument that I'm a a total loss. Um, I'll I'll try to do better. Okay. Please do better. Please. Like, do better. <laughs> Can we pause for a second in just how disrespectful Francisco's response was? Am I wrong in reading when he sort of says, I'll try to do better? He was just basically like, go F yourself, I thought, is what I yeah. actually heard. Yeah. And I kind of couldn't believe he said it as opposed to just thought it. He was stepping over a lot. of. He also did this to Justice Kagan. Yes. He was kind of like interrupty with her a fair amount. She was having none of it, though. Oh, we'll get to that clip later. Yeah. Maybe now, though, let's just play Justice Kagan pressing a point that you, Melissa, made in the preview, which is we talked just a couple of minutes ago about the fact that what the court says here could have bearing on other agencies and institutions like the Federal Reserve Board. Um, So Kagan was pressing this point that even though the Fifth Circuit and the lawyers representing the payday lending industry tried very hard to distinguish the CFPB's funding structure from the Fed, basically labeling the CFPB as containing this kind of double insulation from the appropriations process. It does seem like because they're both funded from assessments on banks, that's a little bit of a stretch to try to draw such a sharp distinction. And so Kagan seemed to be suggesting that in her view, the challenger's arguments absolutely would jeopardize or at least implicate the Fed's funding structure. So let's play that clip here. It sure seems that on your view, the Federal Reserve would also be unconstitutional. And of course, I think it's true that on the logic that's being offered, a lot of other financial institutions would also be in jeopardy. Kagan shares that concern. Yeah, it's just too important and what, whatever. I mean, the FDIC, the OCC, they also fail your test. And I, this is a t-shirt it, it, right too, too important and whatever. <laughs> whatever. Did feel to me like <laughs> Kagan calling BS in pretty explicit terms. She basically is saying, okay, you have a test. You're offering us a test. It would obviously doom these other agencies. And so when we press you on that, you change the test, which I think just – makes it so crystal clear, I think, that the challengers here, they hate the CFPB, they will say whatever is necessary to get the court to strike it down, but they don't really have 
the appetite to bring down the global financial system. And so we're going to try to distinguish away other entities like the Fed. And You're that's just trying just to make the world safe for payday lending. We don't want to do anything more than that. Just, the economy yeah. must be a safe space for payday lenders. It's written it's into the totally unprincipled clause. position. And I think the or whatever in Kagan's question <laughs> makes clear that she shares that view. Yeah, it's like the ultimate like no law just vibes, right? Because they're just abandoning the legal test. There isn't really a legal test. They're just like shooting from the hip at like whatever agencies they don't like. Pew, pew, pew. There goes the CFPB. But like no Fed, you're safe, right? And like that's just kind of what they're doing. Because it seems like the Supreme Court might reject the Fifth Circuit's view of the appropriations clause, wanted to step back and just maybe offer some thoughts on some differences between the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court, because I'm hoping this will be one of several cases where the court actually diverges from the Fifth Circuit. And our listeners are smart, and so they can hold like two ideas in their head, those ideas being that the U.S. Supreme Court is crazy and that the Fifth Circuit is somehow even crazier. And yet I am concerned that legacy media is not yet able to see these things. So I'm going to try to explain it. To me, the Fifth Circuit, they are like the elite strike force legal team. Just constant conspiracy shit beamed down from the mothership. That's their vibe. Whereas Kavanaugh, Barrett, and the chief... They are the Bush campaign legal team, right? Like Bush versus Gore. That's crazy, but like it's not elite strike force legal team. Like they are willing to go with arguments that have been like cooked up and like refined in the course of the federal society's like last several decades, but like not just like whatever poo someone holds out to destroy a disfavored agency. And again, these things are different, right? They are both unhinged, radical, extreme, but they are different. Maybe, you know, in degree rather than kind doesn't mean, right? This other group isn't also cray-cray, but... That's a great comparison. I'm going to resist one aspect of it. Like, to the extent that legacy media will not sort of delve into that nuance, I think it's partly because... One, it's not that nuanced. But I think when they talk about a 333 court with the chief and Kavanaugh and Barrett on one side and then the other three conservatives on the other and then the liberals, that's kind of what they're getting at. Like what you basically have within that block of six on the court is an internecine fight between what kind of Republican the conservative block is going to be. Like a Bush era Republican sort of very conservative, but not necessarily wackadoodle. Or are we going to go the full MAGA? And that's where the other three are. And and I think we're seeing that play out. Like, you know, the three that get posited as moderates are really just Bush-era conservatives, where and they were actually very conservative. I like that comparison also because it also gets at the fact that, like, all aspects of the Republican Party, including the Bush conservatives, are enabling the MAGAers, right? They're all doing the MAGA thing. They just do it differently. Yes, because like the outcomes will be relatively similar. Yeah. How they get there will be different, but yeah. like they're all on board for the outcomes. And yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, of course, as we know from Don Porter's documentary, it's not clear that everyone on Team Bush knows who Brett Kavanaugh is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This argument was also a tale of two solicitor generals, Prelogger and Francisco. And I just want to note. We should say, no, Francisco was a former SG in the Trump administration, just to remind listeners. Yeah. 
Um, yes, the guy who made it safe to get on the shadow docket again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, Solicitor General Prelogger hit the ground running in this oral argument with pages and pages and pages of very specific historical examples of how appropriations like the CFPB's appropriations were consistent with the historic tradition of appropriating funds over time. And that to me is actually really interesting. I mean, it was almost like Bruin, but make it payday lending, right? I mean, she was basically using the court's history and tradition test and now applying it here, which tells you how pervasive and influential this kind of thinking from the court has been, not just in oral arguments on cases like abortion and guns, but even in this sort of question about how Congress can use its power. So this history and tradition thing is a thing, and they're going to use it, and it's shaping and influencing argument. One thing, though, I actually think the use of, of history in these separation of powers cases actually has a pretty long and I think uncontroversial pedigree. I think actually when we're talking about provisions of the Constitution that are pretty spare, mm -hmm. there's not going to be much case law on them. All we really have is, I guess, corpus linguistics and our own oh, intuitions and cocktail that. party conversations. But more importantly, and not facetiously, the actual course of dealings between Congress and the executive branch or by Congress and agencies. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, I think there's a very long and well-established history of the court adverting to correctly. What I think is really novel, though, is the Dobbs and Bruin use of history, which I do think really breaks from decisional methods that the court has long used. I think I'm saying a different thing. Yeah. Like I think here in the separation of powers context, she's actually marshalling lines of arguments that conservatives used in Bruin and Dobbs mm -hmm. successfully, which is to say that this fits into mm -hmm. this history. I mean, she's basically using the Dobbs and Bruin analyses as a template mm -hmm. on which to layer this argument about separation of power. So it's not simply that, y yes, we have done this before, and here are examples of how Congress has interpreted this in the past. She's like basically saying this: there's a tradition of historic regulation mm -hmm. of appropriating in this way, in the way we would say there is a tradition of gun regulation that makes this okay. Yeah, and so- and like, Good for the goose, I, I guess, good for the I think gander. it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think I think yeah. both I think both are right that it's that there is a tradition of it and it is pitched in a way that should be really hard for the conservatives who embrace history in those other contexts to mm -hmm. ignore or reject. Um and you know, just but, another Which is great to watch is. them actually do that. And so speaking of those right. conservatives who apparently only like history and tradition when it's, you know, sending women to parking lots to become septic, just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, Noel Francisco, he showed up and was basically like, here's what the Appropriations Clause means. And it basically means Congress has to specifically identify a very basic dollar amount in an annual statute. And that's the only thing that the Appropriations Clause allows, which, again, entirely inconsistent with history and tradition. But it doesn't matter because no one is sending Congress to a parking lot to have a septic payday lender. I have to say, while Noel Francisco was like very confident that that's what the text of the Appropriations Clause means, I'm not super confident that he has like a firm grasp on what all words and phrases means because like, does he know what the phrase jump the shark means? Because he does not. He here, does not. Here is his literally opening argument, which I take it he like prepared and thought about in advance. So let's play that clip here. That's why Congress rejected that model for the CFPB. They thought it made the agency too politically accountable. 
And if you jump the shark from those to this, then you have blessed a regime in which Congress can authorize the executive branch to spend whatever it wants to fund the entire government. Does Hizzy watch Happy Days? Because everyone who... I haven't watched Happy Days, and I still know what it means. means. Like when Fonzie jumped the shark. Yes. The show is over. That's not what this means, sir. Get you a Gen Xer to explain these things to you. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that was disappointing on a lot of levels. Um, Pop culture, constitutional interpretation, disappointing all around. Um, During the seriatim questioning, I think Justice Thomas tried to throw him a lifeline because Noel Francisco got absolutely bodied by a tag team of Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan. And then even Brett Kavanaugh jumped in to literally pile on. So here's a clip of Justice Thomas coming to the rescue. Mr. Francisco, just briefly, uh, I'd like you to complete this uh, sentence. Uh, Funding of the CFPB is violates the appropriations clause because. And that was followed up by Justice absolutely brutal seriatim questioning with Justice Kagan, which I think is the one you were referring to, Melissa, when you were yes. saying Justice Kagan was like really not having his BS. Well, then the you're, nature, you're, and that would be a, then uh, you're amending your answer uh, to Justice Thomas. No, no, I'm not. That would be a much more. I think you that are. Would be Mr. a much more uh, if, if, difficult question. Could I just please sure. ask my question? Because when you talked to Justice Thomas, you said that the because, what followed the because, was that it was an up to X rather than a specification uh, of a number, no more, no less. So if that's right, then it must be right that Congress could take this back and say you have to spend $600 million, and that would be constitutional. And what I would suggest to you is that's what your argument is, and that's profoundly ahistorical in terms of our history. There was also, by contrast, this extremely painful over-page-long in the transcript that is just Neil Gorsuch interrupting S.J. Prelogger, um, enough to make you go insane. So we're going to spare our listeners that, but it's it's definitely on a, a full page of the transcript. Um, but on the Prelogger point, so again, Solicitor General Prelogger, we have talked about her a lot on the podcast. She was fantastic in this argument. She is always fantastic. Um, and she was, as she always is, measured and respectful, even when getting totally deranged questions. And yet, and yet, I think this is the first time I saw just a glimmer of snark from her. Maybe I'm forgetting another instance, but I can't I can't think of one. Nope. Her anger translator <laughs> was lurking under the surface. <laughs> okay, so you thought, you thought so too. So, so here's the context. Alito is pressing her to identify – a historical example that looks just like this one because the argument is a lot about, as Melissa and I were just talking about, sort of what the history shows here. And she's responsive, but she seems ever so slightly to emit some frustration with what he seems to be demanding of her. So let us play that clip here. What is your best example of an agency that draws its money from another agency that in turn does not 
get its money from a congressional appropriation in the normal sense of that term, but gets it from the private sector? So I I can't give you another example of a source that's precisely like that one, but I would dispute the premise that that could possibly be constitutionally relevant. This is a case about Congress's own prerogatives over the purse, its authority. And if Congress has given away too much of its authority by not providing for a durational limit or not providing or providing for too much discretion to the agency, then I don't see how it could possibly fix the problem that other fee-funded agencies directly collect their money from the entities they regulate. So uh, I take it your answer is that you do not, that is not consistent with any historical practice, but you think that to the extent it is unprecedented, it is unprecedented in a way that is not relevant for present purposes. Is that your answer? Yes, primarily. I think it'd be unprecedented in the way that you could say this is the only agency that has the acronym CFPB. That's obviously true also, but it doesn't track the constitutional value. So, right, it is unprecedented in the way you could say this is the only agency that has the acronym CFPB. So, yes, Justice Alito, that's true. And yet the distinctions that you're identifying are not germane. This was a little snark, wasn't it? Yeah. So. She's kind of done with him. I mean, he, he actually was very, I think, aggressive with her about the history and historical analogs for the CFPB. And there aren't many. But I mean, the point wasn't that there's always been a CFPB. And it's always had this kind of appropriation. The point was like, there are lots of agencies that are structured in this way. Yes. And anyway, moving along. I just want to note the significance of Justice Jackson going last in the seriatim questioning, um, which, again, the seriatim questioning has a lot of upsides and downsides, like oral arguments are Maybe should we explain just for new listeners, right, the seriatim questioning? So, you know, it... it, Go for it. Well, just that it used to be a free-for-all in oral arguments. And then during the pandemic, when they stopped hearing cases argued in person, everybody stayed home and there were telephonic arguments. They used this alternative format in which the justices took turns asking questions just so it wasn't like the chief having to play traffic cop. And then when they resumed regular in-person oral arguments, they adopted this kind of hybrid where it's a free-for-all for a while. And at the very end, they go by seniority with each justice getting a couple of minutes to pose any remaining questions of each advocate. It makes really long arguments and it has sort of upsides and downsides. Sorry, Melissa. That, but so, so what do you think about KBJ no, going that's last? that's very helpful. Thank you for clarifying. Um, I, I do think it's important though – that she gets to be last because as the last person in the seriatim questioning, she gets to do a lot of cleaning mm-hmm. up and reframing. And here she definitely stepped in to challenge what we have been talking about, Kate, um, this whole idea that in order to uphold this appropriation, we have to show that there have been like 150 other similar kinds of appropriations. And this is part of an historic tradition of how Congress appropriates funds. And you know, it's understandable why the SG emphasize that for all of the reasons I've suggested. This is where the court is going and it's thinking. But I thought it was really great that she stepped in to say, like, the real question here is about the appropriations clause, like, and what Congress can do and what Congress's authority is under the appropriations clause. And that's pretty wide open and perhaps by design. So, you know, what we think of as history could play a role here, but it doesn't necessarily have to be determinative. And she also raised a very good point that having courts like the Fifth Circuit or this court, rather than Congress, step in to correct any problems with an appropriations by itself raises a set of separation of powers issues that people seem to be relatively inattentive to. And that wasn't 
raised at all until she raised it in the very last couple yes. of beats of the argument. Yes. And I was so glad she did. Um, and since we're it was like she did that in the affirmative action yeah. case too. Like, doesn't this raise its own yeah. equal protection problem? Yes. Like, it's just like Congress is a big girl. Yes. Congress can do its own work. Like, you don't need the courts to step in and save Congress. A big girl with seashell bikini. That's Congress, and she can she can do a lot <laughs> with flowing red hair. <laughs> but actually, no speaker, <laughs> no voice, wow, and no speaker. <laughs> <laughs> works even better than I'd realized. That's right. It's true. So good. So since we're talking about Justice Jackson, one note from the argument that I took away is that the animosity still so early in this term between Justice Alito and Justice Jackson is really something to behold. And here's what I think was the illustration of that during this argument. So Justice Jackson basically let General Prelogger know that she thinks it is quite misguided to require the government to identify an exact precedent, as you were just saying, Melissa, as Alito was basically doing in the quote that we just played a minute ago. So basically earlier in that exchange, the one that sort of I thought led Prelogger to a little bit display her annoyance, earlier in that same exchange, before he was pressing her for the best example, he had asked about whether Congress could allocate a trillion dollars to the FBI and then tell the president to spend it as he sees fit, and Gorsuch had been banding about similar hypos. Okay, so here is KBJ posing a question to General Prelogger, but clearly responding to Justice Alito. Some of the questions that have been asked this morning are um, seem to be requiring you to establish whether or not Congress can do certain things. Can you know what if Congress, you know, delegated uh, uh, the authority to um, to determine a trillion dollars worth of funding and how the agency was going to do it. What if Congress set it up in this way or that way, et cetera? But I sort of thought that the burden was on them to show that Congress can't set up the agency in this way. And the reason I think that is because of the language of the Appropriations Clause and the way in which it seems to give the legislature the prerogative of the purse. And here we have a statute in which the legislature has exercised that. So am I right that that's really all you need to say to win? I mean, you don't lose if you can't establish the limits in Congress's uh, exercise of its authority, right? I think that's right, Justice Jackson. Okay, so she is basically talking about burden shifting, right? Like, whose burden is this? I thought, she says, right, the burden is on them to show Congress can't do this. And some of my colleagues seem to be suggesting the burden is on you to identify an exact analog. Um, So then Alito later in his questioning of Noel Francisco basically responds directly to Justice Jackson. So let's play that clip here. Francisco, until the very end of the Solicitor General's argument, I thought I understood the limiting principle that she was advocating and the limiting principle that you were advocating. And at at least at a fairly high level of generality, I thought there was agreement on what the limiting principle was, and that was a comparison of the setup that is before us with historical practice. Uh, And I don't think there's anything unusual about asking counsel in cases that come before us for the limiting principle of the argument that they're making. That's a basic question that we ask. I don't think it's a question of burden shifting. If I were her anger translator, I would have been like, say it to my face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't know exactly what was going on through her mind, but I did feel like I did want somebody to translate it. It felt like he was responding quite directly. And she also mentioned burdens again in her time 
with the, the her final exchange with the Solicitor General, the one, Melissa, you were just talking about. And there I think she's responding not just to Alito, but to all of her conservative colleagues kind of like casually debating how the court should for the first time ever superintend Congress's power of the purse. So here her, is her mentioning burdens and then the clip that I think you were alluding to, Melissa, where she sort of brings in the separation of powers. No, but I I'm asking you what I'm asking you is help me to understand why that's not what it means, that that's your burden. Right? That's what the words seem to say. There's nothing in this Constitution that's like Scenario 1, like the Army Clause, where Congress, where, where the framers have specifically uh, restricted the exercise of authority that they're giving to Congress. So, again, I am, you know, not mad that we get to watch Justice Jackson do her thing for the rest of the term. Um, and I really wonder I really if— I really do wish are, she had an anger translator. If, her and Alito, yeah. someone, if it's this bad this early— I just, I'm not sure where we are going to go in the next nine months, but we'll see. You know, I I don't actually care about him, so. So we're going to save most of our in-depth discussion about the cases the court is hearing this week for next week's episode when we recap them. We did want to note that in one case, an employment law case, Murray versus UBS Securities, strict scrutiny super guest Isha Anand is making her Supreme Court debut, which we are super excited about. Also, the court is hearing another important voting rights case, Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. This involves another type of voting rights claim that differs from the sort of claim that was at issue in Allen versus Milligan. In this case, the South Carolina one, the claim is that South Carolina intentionally drew its districts to disadvantage Black voters. There is also a separate independent, what's called Shaw claim, um, where the appearance of the districts gives rise to the sense that race is, you know, a explanation behind them. So we will hear what the court says and does about the future of those types of voting rights claims um, in this case. This case is kind of about how, if at all, the court can disaggregate race from partisanship, given that racial polarization, a phenomenon where you know members of one racial group or another tend to vote for one political party or another, um, could explain some of what the legislature did. Um, but again, given kind of the correlation between the two, it's difficult to disentangle them. A second thing which might come up at the oral argument is ProPublica ran a story about how Representative Clyburn was actually involved in the creation of these maps to, you know, the reporting went, help his own district be safer while leading to a set of maps that disadvantaged Black voters throughout the state more generally, um, leading to more, you know, safer Republican seats. And at argument, Sam Alito is going to be furiously pressing two alternative theories. One is that these maps can't be racist because Jim Clyburn can't be racist, or are you saying Jim Clyburn is racist? Second, and alternatively, is that ProPublica is a bunch of lying um, hacks and who just engaged and smear jobs, and therefore we can't believe anything they say, including about me and Clarence. Um, Should note, Clyburn filed an amicus brief in this case saying he wasn't substantively involved in the maps. So these are the cases the court will be hearing. And as Leah said, we'll talk at much more length about them in our next episode. Okay, let's dive into court culture, and there's a lot going on to dig into. So in the last episode, we noted the very happy news that SCOTUS was going to stick to its decision in Allen versus Milligan and require Alabama to create a second majority-minority district where black Alabamians could select the candidate of their choice after the court concluded that Alabama's map with just one majority-minority district violated the Voting Rights Act. But now, here it comes, you guessed it, the Fifth Circuit. Cue Darth Vader music. 
The Fifth Circuit has decided to step in and rain on that parade. So listeners, you'll recall that after SCOTUS issued the order allowing Alabama to use its unlawful maps in the 2022 midterms, the court did the same thing with maps out of Louisiana, where even though a district court concluded that the Louisiana maps violated the VRA, SCOTUS said, eh, not a big deal. It'll work for the midterms, might even flip Congress and allowed Louisiana to use those illegal maps. You would think that in light of what the court eventually did in Milligan, here the Louisiana case would proceed in a similar way, that having affirmed the VRA's strength and noting that vote dilution continues to exist, this case would proceed in a way in which Louisiana would also be required to create another majority-minority district in its state. And yet this saga, every time it feels as though you can breathe a sigh of relief and like the rule of law is secure, like, no, of course it isn't. And so the Fifth Circuit decides to step in here and say no. So you have the Fifth Circuit, specifically Judge James Ho and Judge Edith Jones, taking the completely insane, extraordinary step of issuing a mandamus order blocking the district court from proceeding with a hearing about drawing new maps to create a second majority minority district. I don't really have the words to say how (laughs) crazy it is for a court of appeals to stop a case while it is ongoing and before the district court has finalized it by adopting a remedy where all the district court is doing is proceeding exactly consistent with what the Supreme Court just said had to happen in an essentially materially identical case. Mandamus is supposed to be for truly insane things judges do. If this district court judge literally decided to gag one of the lawyers and refused to allow them to proceed in this hearing— Maybe a mandamus would be okay. I mean, it's truly supposed to be that extreme, the circumstances in which mandamus is appropriate. And here, all you have this district court doing is proceeding in the ordinary course, and yet the Fifth Circuit has stopped it from happening. And this is the Fifth Circuit, so maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Stairs in June medical services versus Russo. Or Whole Women's Health versus Jackson or any of the other Fifth Circuit's antics. Um, More seriously, it does appear that Fifth Circuit judges experience an aesthetic injury whenever anyone (laughs) attempts to enforce civil rights or remedy a Voting Rights Act violation. So that must be what's going on here. Um, But, you know, the upshot of this decision, because the Court of Appeals has delayed the process of creating new maps, is there's a risk that any decision drawing new maps would happen too late and too close to the 2024 election for the maps to be used Because remember, Brett Kavanaugh adopted the nonsensical view in the Alabama case that the Purcell principle, the idea that courts shouldn't change rules in ways that confuse voters too close to an election, he adopted that principle in the Alabama redistricting case to bar a court from, you know, stopping Alabama from using illegal maps. So this is bad since it increases the odds that there will be yet another election under a set of illegal maps that disadvantage voters of color. It's almost like it's a concerted effort to disenfranchise people. Over and over and over again. Almost. The Austin Chronicle had a really important story about some of the consequences of the continuation of the blue slip practice in the Senate. The blue slip practice is this. um, Home state senators have what's essentially a veto over district court nominees. So even when the home state senators are of a different party than the president, they get to basically veto the president's nominees to the district court, essentially gumming up the works. Stanford law professor Mark Lemley and others have documented how the blue slip process has meant that Biden has not been able to nominate that many district court judges in states that have two Republican senators. And the Austin Chronicle reports that this has had really severe consequences in Texas in particular. 
In Austin, there's just one district court judge, and there are two vacant judgeships that have not been filled in Austin because the blue slips allow the two senators in Texas, Senator John Cornyn and our favorite, the gentleman from Cancun, to essentially veto any district court nominees. So this means that Judge Robert Pittman, who is the good Pittman, not the Pittman who likened the eviction moratorium to the emergent Nazi regime. Good Judge Pittman will have more than 1,000 cases this year because he's the only judge in Austin. So why, given this severe, severe lack of capacity in the Austin courthouse, why won't the Republican senators agree to nominate some district court judges to fill those slots in Austin? Well, perhaps it's because Austin is where the Texas legislature is located and where Texas government happens. And that means Austin is a place where the Texas government can always be sued. And so having district court judges from a Democratic president seems to be incompatible with some of the goals that the great state of Texas has for its policies. So absolutely appalling, but completely on brand. After our last episode was recorded, Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away. Uh, Senator Feinstein, of course, had a very impressive career. And there was some uncertainty about what this would mean um, because there were some reports that Republicans would block Democrats from allowing her replacement to serve on committees. It doesn't appear that that is going to happen. Now, Senator LaFonza Butler has been sworn in. She is the first Black lesbian to serve in the Senate and right now the only Black woman in the Senate. And Republicans Republicans are not signaling that they will block her from committee assignments. And from the judge's perspective, the concern that she wouldn't be given committee assignments was a really serious one because Feinstein sat on the Judiciary Committee and the Democrats being down on that committee might have ground confirmations to a halt. But as we sit here recording, it does not appear that that is likely to materialize. But you know what will get blocked? Not LaFonza Butler, but investment funds that are trying to provide venture capital funding to black women. So there is reporting that a VC fund that directed venture capital funding to black women who incidentally receive about 1% of all VC funding in the whole United States. Um, This fund has been blocked by the 11th Circuit on the ground that providing such funds to black women is inconsistent with the court's ruling in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. So I hate it here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that obviously SFFA is a case about you know, the use of race in higher education admissions and coming out of the opinion, there are there were a lot of questions. How constrained to this context, how more broadly applicable is the court's reasoning? And this opinion represents, I think, the broadest possible interpretation um, and does suggest that other race-conscious programs and policies and funds could be in jeopardy under an expansive reading of the Students for Fair Admissions case. So it's a deeply alarming opinion in its own right, and it's also deeply alarming in terms of sort of what it could be. It's unright. I love like Did you say? In its own right. It is also unright. And it is also unright. It is unright. You know, Justice Stevens used to use unwisdom, which was so Uh. quaint and adorable. He would describe things as displaying unwisdom. So unwisdom and unright. I'm game to use both of them. Okay. So I have a question, which is, did Clarence Thomas grow an ethics in the last (laughs) couple of weeks? So Thomas recused from a case involving John Eastman's emails and the January 6th committee. This was a cert petition. It was denied. But we got a one-sentence note in the denial that Justice Thomas took no part in consideration or decision of this petition. 
Justice Thomas conspicuously did not recuse in an earlier effort of Trump to keep his documents from the January 6th committee that were in the possession of the National Archives. So this is movement. And look, it's small. I am not suggesting that ethics is fixed at the Supreme Court. But I do think it suggests that the public outrage might be having some impact. Also, didn't Justice Alito recuse himself in a case in which he had apparently stock holdings? In but that Orlando. he's done in a long time, and he very much did I, not recuse no, anymore, obviously. But this moment, I think, yeah. um, you know, Sherilyn Eiffel on Twitter noted that she thought this was likely due to the pressure that people have been putting on the court about these disclosure lapses and these ethical lapses. And I don't know if they pay attention. It seems like they might be paying a little attention at the margins. Um, we'll see where this leads. But again, as you say, a very small step. Can we talk happy announcements for a minute? Okay. Melissa? Well, they're like happy-ish given like the subject of the books. (laughs) Okay. This is fair. There are two wonderful books that you guys are writing. Um, So Melissa announced a couple of weeks ago, we knew about this, but you guys just found out that she is doing a book with Andrew Weissman called The Trump Indictments. Has a subtitle. I don't remember. It's like the historic Sorry, charging Melissa. documents with commentary, mm, and which with is sure to be brilliant, incisive, potentially yeah. funny. Is it funny? Is any of the commentary funny? I think some of it actually is funny. Basically, we're annotating all right. of the indictments so yeah. people kind of know what's going on. It's like the MST three thousand of yeah, the Trump indictments with you exactly. and Andrew in the backs of your heads, just like giving us running commentary. Right. I like well, this. I think of it as pop up video where okay. we're yeah, like, Boom. that's a more contemporary. You, Trevion was Kanye West publicist. Right. It's like right. that. So okay. you know, like. And trying to explain a lot of the choices that were made, the prosecutorial choices that were made, and and also to contextualize everything. So, you know, we have a quite, like, significant bit of writing that talks about other systems where holding former public officials accountable is not that unusual. It actually happens quite a lot. So we're trying to contextualize, trying to explain. And this book is going to come out in the end of February, right before the first trial is supposed to start. But I will say, the editing process is dynamic. (laughs) Um, Like, there's a complete moving target as we continually revise and talk about gag orders and talk about people who are flipping. So I mean, I I think we will be editing right up until the last minute. But we're really looking forward to it. And we hope it'll be a service to those who are going to follow the indictments closely. All right. So it's coming on February. People can pre-order. We will drop the link in our show note. It's available wherever you buy your books. I hope there'll be an audio book. I hope there'll be a smoothie. I don't um, know exactly. I, I, <laughs> I think Meryl Streep wants to read oh, my choice. <laughs> I think Roger Jean actually wants yeah, to read the He's going to do Andrew's. He's going to do Andrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to cast you. Reggie Jean and Meryl Streep, a conversation. <laughs> okay, sure. I like this. Everyone and I want, her, I want her to read it in her Miranda Priestley voice. Yes. Please um, try this case at a glacial pace. You know how that thrills me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Leah is also writing a book, not going to be out in February. It'll be a little bit no. of a longer lead time. And I don't know. It's not available for pre-order it's yet. It's not available okay. for pre-order yet. So yeah. we'll, we will definitely bring our listeners But wait, it has um, the speed. best title it ever. Does have what is title. the title? The title is Lawless, How the Supreme Court Came to Run on Conservative Grievance, Fringe Theories, and Bad Vibes. Love it. Excellent Love it. title, excellent subtitle, um, and both of these books are I'm going to be... send a signed copy to Sam. <laughs> X-X-O-O. <laughs> exactly. You should think Thanks about for it. making yeah. this possible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> actually, My you should probably dedicate it. You should probably not just sign oh it, but God. actually dedicate yes. it to him in right. the printed volume. 
Yeah. Justice Sotomayor always signs her books with like dream big. You should do that. Mm. Like, dream big. <laughs> oh, dream he big. is. He's Seven dreaming to real two big. Majority. That's the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know he does dream big. Um, and we, so these are both really exciting developments. We'll keep you posted on both. Um, and we will also have some new merch dropping soon. So stay tuned for all of that. And as you know, we are big fans of Karyuma. They make cool, eco-friendly shoes that we basically wear 24-7. And we're excited that Crooked is releasing a second collaboration with them. Karyuma cross, love it or leave it. There's just something about fall that makes you want to get new shoes. So why not get ones made with organic cotton canvas, natural rubber, cork, and recycled plastics? It doesn't hurt that they have tiny surfing dogs on them. They come in pink and black and feature a whimsical scene that'll absolutely put some pep in your step. Plus, Karyuma plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest for each pair purchased. So run, don't walk, but not until you get a pair of shoes at crooked.com store. They are hella cute. I do like them. They are. So I cute. love They're the little really prints, like the what a week, the love it or leave it on the, I forget what that, the, the tongue the of the ones shoe. Also yeah, I, so I also love the boat. Yeah, the love it or leave it ones are I love super the love it or leave cute. It. Yes. They're really yeah. cute. It's like a darker base, um, which I think works well for like fall Everything. and winter. So yeah. Yeah. I'm slightly jealous. Like when are we going to have the Karyuma Strict Scrutiny collab? Mm. I mean, like little justice. Too important or whatever. Um, or whatever. That'll be on there. Um, so that. judicious. So um, judicious. Or wait, what was the extra judicious? Especially judicious? Not especially judicious. Not especially judicious. judicious. That'll be on there. So, dead, dead, dead. Yeah. Brought to you by originalism and more. Just give us a call, Kiriuma. We're ready. <laughs> Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Lippman, me, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. It's produced and edited by Melody Rowell. Ashley Mizuo is our associate producer. We have audio engineering by Kyle Seglin, music by Eddie Cooper, and production support from Michael Martinez and Ari Schwartz. Daily headlines remind us of how the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is moving fast and breaking precedents, but elsewhere in the lower courts where the media spotlight doesn't shine as bright, unseen forces are fomenting a quiet revolution. We Don't Talk About Leonard is a new series from ProPublica and On the Media. It explores the web of money, influence, and power behind the conservative takeover of America's courts and considers the man at the center of it all. Listen to On the Media from WNYC. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Somebody Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5.